the Equest podcast, Fun's Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Equest podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the Equest podcast, do hit the subscribe button, hit the like button on whatever your preferred podcast platform provider is. That's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, for this episode of the Equest podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Cahill of Savvy Recruitment Consultants. Jen is a fairly regular contributor to the podcast, albeit we haven't had her in a little while. So we'll catch up on all things to do with recruitment in the financial services industry, particularly around the availability of talent and what's happening uh, in terms of salaries and demand and what, what uh, particular skill sets are most sought after. We also talk about what are the sexiest types of firms that candidates tend to get drawn towards. We chat about SEER, the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, which is on the way and has been for a little while, and the impact that that's already starting to have on candidates' views of new roles and the types of questions they are asking of firms before they are willing to sign up. But before any of that, we chat about flexibility in the workplace. It's something that we had chatted about on a podcast about two years ago, the value that staff members place on the ability to work a day or two from home and how that might restrict people from leaving a role because it was so valuable to them and so difficult to get. But in light of work from home for the last 18 months, uh, we chat about whether that flexibility is now not just an exception, but absolutely expected and something that candidates will demand from any role that they're interested in taking up. So let's get on with the show. The Equest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the Equest Podcast. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. You're a regular at this stage. <laughs> I know. Got my slot back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and how are things in the, the world of savvy recruitment consultants? It's good. Yeah, it's good. It's busy. It's very busy, which is great. I'll, I'll take that any day over last year. Um, so, yeah, no, it's really busy. And in terms of life generally and returning to office spaces and working from the wilds of County Cavan, all that playing out now that office spaces are open again. Yeah, so like in my own case, I, um, I've i only started in the last couple of weeks going back up to Dublin one or two days a week, just even because I want to, do you know, that kind of thing, just to kind of mix it up. I think um, I get a sense there's a good few people maybe in that bracket where just a bit of a mix, you know what I mean, to get out of the house and get out from just the mundane maybe of the same thing day in, day out. So I've been doing that over the last couple of weeks and that's been really, really good. Um, again, in our own case, we took some office space uh, for the first time since we'd given it up early last year um so we're this kind of a new team we've brought new people on so we're spending a bit of time together which is actually do you know what i know virtually things could work and it absolutely worked out and we could do these sort of things but my own sense is that to when you're in a team environment there, there's a lot that's lost virtually or needing to pick up the phone to ask somebody something and maybe not yeah. doing that so for me you know even when you're trying to build a business and stuff like that just getting that just been back in the room with people, you know what I mean? And that sense of working together for me anyway, that was really missing. So I'm really enjoying that sense again. And I do want to talk to you about the, the state of the market generally and about the regulator. <clears throat> Excuse me. What about though, we, when we did a podcast a couple of years ago, we talked a lot about flexibility and um, that that was really important to quite a lot of, of staff members and, and would be a reason why somebody might not leave to go to another job if they felt that they were being well looked after. Uh, and for example, if they had kids, that, they, that there was some flexibility about they, uh, how they worked. 
with COVID and working from home, has that all kind of accelerated? Is it now a given that people will get this kind of flexibility or is it still up for negotiation or, or how are you seeing that play out? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, because as you say, when we last spoke about this a couple of years ago, it was, you know, I would see it that people were in a kind of a handcuff situation in, in particular roles if they'd worked up flexibilities. Flexibility was something you earned over time. It was sort of a reward for loyalty and longevity. So if somebody had that, like maybe one day working from home or whatever it was, even though they were they were maybe still happy in a job, but they were like, God, I can't leave it unless you can guarantee me I can kind of match that flexibility. And the reality was we couldn't in most cases guarantee that because when we went to maybe a new employer going, we think this candidate absolutely meets the requirements for what you're looking for, but they need this. It would be like, oh, I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if we can guarantee it. There's going to be consternation. We're going to have everybody in looking for that. I always thought that was a little bit over egged um, and probably just because people were a bit nervous, maybe about just all of those mechanics and it just seemed a bit fussy or whatever. But yeah, people were locked in roles because they couldn't match flexibility they'd earned. Whereas now, I swear, I know there's been commentary, but I would agree with the commentary that says we've probably come, like we've probably advanced that by minimum five to 10 years in terms of just the pragmatism around working from home. So what we're seeing at the moment is not, most people actually don't want to work from home five days a week. They want to blend. They want the interaction. They miss the interaction like I missed it. Um, but they just want the flexibility, whether it's kids, whether it's caring for elderly parents, whereas it's just life happening yeah. or not wanting to do a commute five days a week. They just want flexibility. So the three, two is kind of becoming a little bit more standard. It's it's largely driven by, I think, firms, the nervousness they had now seeing that it does work. Um and the same productivity can be achieved in a remote environment. And I'm talking particularly about financial services because that's the sphere we're both in. So if we take just that sector, absolutely it worked. You know, most financial services firms grew, if anything, during the crisis rather than shrank. Um, so it didn't impact the, the financial services industry to the same degree, obviously, as others like hospitality. So in that industry, I think we saw that it works. So that, that sort of took away that barrier or maybe that argument um, and now candidates are just insisting on it they're like well no because they can point now to I've done my job for the last 18 months can you say that my performance slipped in any way and they'd be like no I can't so they're like okay well what's the argument for not being able to allow some of that to continue and then they don't really have a leg to stand on on yeah. that you know um, so yeah the candidates are just insisting on it so it's it's become a market thing where the expectation is there so the question we get is what is the flexibility not is there flexibility and do employers resist or are they? No. They see there, there are some maybe international firms where, and particularly in the US, I think the US in financial services has a strong ethos of presentee. You know what I mean? We get to the office. We, we want to be in the office. You know, it kind of a, it's given as a cultural thing, you know, that is important. Everybody is there. I would say for any, most, the majority of firms in Dublin and in Ireland are very much realistic about this is just the way this is going to go going forward and actually there are probably more advantages to this for us in terms of access to talent that we maybe didn't have before because we were so locked into location being key um so yeah i think it i think it's a win-win genuinely because i do think particularly given the environment we have at the moment where everybody's frantically searching for the same kind of people and it's really tight opening up location where you might only have to commute to dublin two days a week 
you know, it, it's advantageous for firms to be thinking like that. And, th and they see it even from a cost perspective, you know, that maybe we don't need that extra floor in that office building for exorbitant rents. Maybe we just need the one floor and we have, you know, flexible working and everybody just revolves around the space that we have. So there's a lot of things that make it very worthwhile for firms. And that, that leads us then into the marketplace, generally the recruitment marketplace. Um, you mentioned scrambling for the same talent. Um, when we spoke a little while ago, it was a pretty hot marketplace. There's a lot of demand and not an awful lot of availability. How are things shifting at the moment? Yeah, it's, it, it is like it's it's intense. And it, I think it's a sense of a of maybe pent up demand from last year. And as I mentioned, like financial services wasn't as neg negatively impacted by COVID Um as others. So what happened last year was there was this kind of pause where everybody tried to assess what was going on. And then there was just a recruitment ban by a lot of recruit, particularly international firms, like unless it was a, an absolute compulsory backfill or a regulatory, you know, role that they needed to have for authorization, they weren't going to do it. You know, nobody was hiring off the back of projected growth because people weren't sure. Um, and what has happened is that those businesses actually did okay. You know what I mean? We stabilized. We actually maybe grew during that period. So they're coming off the back of potentially a recruitment ban for the rest of 2020 um, and then coming into 2021 going, okay, we've got, we've got to make up for the stuff we didn't hire at the latter end of 2020 to meet the growth that we didn't project um, or were too nervous to hope for. And now it feels like just since February, it's just been like back to business as usual. We've just totally adapted to remote working. People are only starting to come back into offices, but it's been manically busy since the beginning of February. Again, your risk, your compliance, there's new businesses coming. It's brilliant. You know, there's still a lot of new traction in terms of new authorizations and new firms coming in or existing firms expanding. It's just really, really busy. So again, yeah, it's like, it is a candidate driven. It's amazing. In the case yeah. of 12 months time, like last summer, somebody came to me going, I'm looking for this really hot skill set, maybe in a contract role. If somebody was out of contract and got unlucky with COVID where it was coming up for renewal, just as the, the crisis hit, then they were out of a job. They were had they had their pick of talent last year for contract roles, maybe in areas which they never would have before. But now, not a mission. Trying to get somebody to do a maternity cover or a fixed term contract. There's so much perm opportunity out there, pretty much across. Like the consultancies are hiring out the door. Like it's just so so busy. It's crazy. Most candidates we're dealing with have three or four processes on the go. They actually go. Actually, I'm not even. I don't want to even look at another job description. I'm. I feel stretched as it is in terms of what I'm looking at. And when you're getting to offer with people, they probably have, at a minimum have one other offer. Like it's just crazy. And how much of the growth then is organic? You know, you mentioned business, businesses growing and being busier. How much of it is driven by that versus driven by relocating firms or, or Brexit driven or regulator driven in terms of expectations around uh, staffing levels and substance in firms? Is, is that a big driver? Um. Yeah, so it is a blend of both, to be honest, because now that the market has opened up and that nervousness around moving has gone from a candidate perspective in, in financial services, it, there's a lot of just churn now. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people who are going, right, I didn't want to leave during COVID because it was a bit of a nervy time when I kind of did want to move pre-COVID. And now that nervousness has left me and now I'm going to pursue that opportunity in that other firm that I was nervous about doing. So you've lots of movement, which is creating the backfill movement, you know what I mean, and that activity. But I would say there's equally, as I said, indigenous firms growing, because genuinely, if I think of what we've on at the moment, it, to be honest, it's, it's probably about 60% indigenous firms, firms who are already here, just growing, 
just growing, building teams or replacing people who had left or are about to leave. And then there's the probably 40%, which are new-ish, you know what I mean? Um, maybe being small, but now the plans are quite aggressive, you know what I mean, in terms of what they want to achieve. So maybe new product lines that they want to do um, and just growth, just, just seeing we're back into where the mind firm was at the beginning of 2020 going, okay, really positive. There's lots of opportunity out there. Um, so they're maybe not total new entrants, but they were maybe small and they flew under the radar and now they're, they're, they're back with a bang and they're really aggressive and ambitious about what they want to do. And what kind of roles are, are the ones that are, I guess, most in demand? I think you mentioned compliance and risk. Yeah. And look, they, they that, that is just not going away. And it's just yeah. been constant over the last number of years. And it was the one area throughout COVID because, you know, firms had no choice. If if somebody left in a, a regulated or a piece of control, you had to backfill them. You didn't have a choice. So that has just got busier. Uh, but other things that would have been totally dead during COVID that we have at the moment, like product type roles, you know, like somebody to come in and design the customer experience for a new mortgage business, for example, that somebody's setting up. Um, those kind of roles, you know what I mean? Those kind of like, oh, this is kind of juicy and we haven't seen this before. And it's all around, you know, growth and new business lines and stuff. That wouldn't have been something that we would have seen throughout COVID because as I said, people were just nervous. They didn't know. So they certainly weren't making those kind of plans. So, um, yeah. But the consultancy in risk consulting and outsourced internal audit, that's really busy. You know, finance and accounting, that's consistently busy. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's you know, that's our sphere anyway in terms of where we work. But the, the consultancy bits and the more project management, change management, product development and product owners, that's the, that's the juicy sort of stuff that we didn't see during the crisis. Now what about portfolio management? Are you seeing demand for, for people with portfolio management expertise and, and are you seeing that expertise being available? Uh, it's it's not, it's there's not as much demand. I, I do think we maybe overhyped maybe the impact that Brexit would have or maybe we're overly hopeful, I think, on the front office side because like even some of the bigger banks, like there isn't huge substance necessarily on the front office that they have in Dublin. It's, it's still maybe Paris or Frankfurt where those frontline, you know, kind of front mm. office teams are located. So it's still very much immediately post-trade or after that like there obviously are more asset managers here there are more investment management and portfolio management roles than there would have been pre-brexit but it's not it's not a wash with them you know what I mean um it's it's still a much tighter market than maybe the demand that's there or people who are maybe still reviewing the market from from the likes of London and elsewhere to maybe come back to um, they're just fewer and further between because those firms are still relatively small here. You know, most yeah. Brexit entrants are probably still under 10 people. And I know there's exceptions, but the majority are under, t- maybe even under five. So they're not, we didn't see the growth in that particular space to the same degree we did in risk and compliance or general kind of head of ops or, you know, head of office. Yeah. And do you find that there's particular types of firms that when competing with others for talent are, are viewed as sexier and more exciting and dynamic and, and find that they tend to win. So if you had professional services firm competing with financial services firm competing with a fintech or something in that sector for the same. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely, you know, roles where you're like, okay, I can, I'll have people who are going to be interested in this versus ones that are maybe a little bit of a harder, harder sell, but, uh, the Brexit entrance, certainly, like, you know, within asset management. But, but I will say the initial sort of gleam around, oh, God, that's a big name in investment management and it's coming to Dublin has waned because what people have experienced is that 
yes, I'm going into this big name, but I'm sitting in Dublin and that team might be five people. And we have seen a huge amount of churn in the last three years in those Brexit entrants. They've lost to the second wave Brexit entrants, which was their fear initially, um, or on bigger scale ones, you know, because people realize that it's not just the work, it's the context and it's the environment in which you do that work that is really important or equally important. So people were saying to me going, I kind of didn't realize that I'd miss the meetings. Like I never thought I said I would miss meetings and having to go to meetings and be like, oh my God. But they're like, when you're sitting there with the same five people or maybe only three people day in, day out, and you feel like you haven't got enough work to do or you're not getting that sense of buzziness, yeah. you know? So th there has been a learning around that in, in this market because it was new to us. Everybody was going, oh God, big name, let's go there. And I haven't had an opportunity to do that elsewhere. So there's more wisdom, I would say. The candidates are more discerning about, okay, it's a big name, but talk to me about the environment, talk to me about who's there, talk to me about the plans for growth in Dublin. And genuinely, if there isn't sort of that plan to grow or develop or bring more stuff to Dublin, that can be difficult. Then, I, you know, it's become less attractive to want to be part of one of a team of three to five. You know what I mean? They want a little yeah. bit of buzziness. In terms of other things that are, fintech is definitely the sexy thing. I just think there, everybody has a different interpretation. Like AIB could be a fintech because it uses online banking, you know, in the broader definition of fintech. But yes, like we've seen the Revoluts growing aggressively here and hiring an awful lot of people. Um, there's a lot of obviously fintechs that are emerging, you know, that are kind of flying under the radar at the moment, maybe those small kind of teams. But it's definitely a space where, a lot of people in traditional financial services, particularly banking, uh, both retail and corporate banking, kind of see that maybe that's waning in terms of the numbers there and really interested in fintech or crypto or whatever it is. Anything new and exciting and growing um, is really, really interesting. And look, you have the stalwarts for insurance is there, management companies, obviously. Um, so external or internal man mancos, which is a lot of the Brexit entrance, that continues to be more attractive in funds, for example, over fund administration. Um, but we're seeing new entrants in fund admin. You know, this new um, real assets depository license has created um, a lot more opportunity and it's brought more niche fund admin and service providers into the Dublin market, which is really interesting because, again, it's a growth story and it's a broader role and it's not as functionalized as maybe people have been used to in bigger fund admin houses. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of exciting. So even if people aren't getting out of fund admin, maybe they're getting into a smaller, more growth, more niche area within that, which has given them that flex or that challenge that they were maybe missing in a bigger house. Well, look, could you throw out your regulatory terms, real asset depositories? Ah, oh, sure, look. <laughs> now, Pro. let's get into brass tax, Jennifer. What is this doing to salaries? Yeah, there's the fun bit. If you're paying them, that's the really fun bit. Yeah, um, yeah look, at, uh, there's no denying, particularly in risk and compliance, there is a premium. Some people have done incredibly well in the last three years years because as I said they've moved like there are some people who hadn't moved for about seven or eight years that stayed with the one employer re-Brexit and they've probably had three year three moves in some in a lot of cases in the last four um and they've done really well out of those moves because they've looked for a premium and they've been know that they're leaving bonuses so they've got sign-on bonuses and all those different things so it has pushed salaries up um, which demand always will, you know what I mean? And you can kind of name your price a little bit. So, yes, I would say the base number for where somebody, particularly if they're holding a PCF designated person role, is definitely higher now than it would have been um, than maybe in 2016, 2017, when we were looking at the original Brexit entrance. They are not 
able to hire at that level that they did. You know, maybe if somebody was saying, oh, I want to PCF on ops risk or something or whatever it might have been for maybe 90K. And that would have been achievable at the time where a second in command would have come out of somewhere bigger. But now you're talking about a base salary minimum. 110 120 for anything that's pcf and that'd be on a smaller scale and then mm. if the if the scale and complexity of what you're managing here in the aum necessitates it then it's more than that but that would be a minimum and um, which is certainly higher than it was uh, yes and and well that's a function of the market i suppose and, and supply mm. and um you mentioned pcfs so i did want to ask you about a uh, candidate's experience with the financial regulator and their you know, whether the fact that, for example, SEER, which is the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, which, you know, people are getting quite familiar with at this stage, uh, putting more onus and more accountability on the heads of the individuals carrying out senior management roles, whether that is putting people off or causing them to pause and think about whether a senior role is for them. Yeah. And we, I think we talked about this before, where there was definitely a change. And when SEER first was talked about um you know it did start to reframe i think how people perceived uh, from from a candidate side pcf roles within these regulated entities so it um it has changed i think that original friction so that we went through a period a few years ago where uh particularly around the cbi and the pushback around pcf approvals and this is probably god i'm I, i'm losing track of time with COVID, but you sort of 2019 where People who had a lot of experience were very seasoned risk and compliance professionals were going for approval and they were getting called for interviews and they were like, oh, this has never happened before. Like I normally fill out the questionnaire and it's a seamless process and I have a clean sheet, you know what I mean? So I go through and then you had the even more nervy situation where people, again, very seasoned to their mind, very clean records with the central bank were called for a second round interview. And then you really had people going, whoa, and then that kind of spread that 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 got discussed in the industry and people became more aware of people they knew that that had happened to. And so it created this kind of fear or just because it was unknown, because they couldn't rationalize it themselves. Now, obviously, CBI had rationale and there's, you know, but for me, my take on it, obviously, that's, this is just my perception. on. It. I think it was the point at which the CBI were just pushing back generally. I think there were particular individuals, definitely, who they certainly didn't want to see in particular roles. But I think they were coming out to just demonstrate that we have armory here to it's not a foregone conclusion. You know what I mean? Just because you've experienced in risk and compliance, maybe it's in a different industry and we're not satisfied that you know enough about this particular sector, for example. I think that happened quite a bit. And yeah. we wanna make sure, and we wanna kind of make you sweat a little bit and know that this is not a foregone thing. You know, you've gotta put in the work. We, we gotta see that you know the products or you've upskilled on them. And I know we did a couple of things around that sort of space before, but that for me, but I think now, it's nearly the expectation. I think now the bar of expectation around PCF approval has gone up. And because more and more people have now gone through it, we've just got more comfortable with, okay, there will more than likely be an interview. You know, okay, if you get called for a second, you should just withdraw because there's obviously something there you're not aware of, or maybe a previous firm you worked with is about to get some sort of uh, slap on the knuckles and, and you were there at the time or whatever it might be, but just withdraw. But most people are going to kind of interview stage which i don't think is 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 bad thing you know what i mean because yeah. um there should be that rigor around it given the level of responsibility but i think the yeah, the market is kind of and that happens with everything has come to terms with that they've kind of realized now that's the expectation and they're just more prepared for it now yeah it's certainly you know working with firms and individuals who 
have been called for interview. It is, it's not everybody, but it is not unusual in the way that yeah. it had been two or three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, and it does send a message out beyond just interviewing the individual who's in front of you to, to determine their, their fitness and probity. It does send a message out to the industry generally that these are serious roles that carry responsibilities and you need to know and appreciate that before you sign up uh, yeah. to on the role. And, and so even from messaging from a regulator's perspective, it, it serves an important function. Yeah. And, but the other negative thing that it did do, but again, I, I think that's waning out now as well. But the only negative thing that I would have had issue with is in doing that. And I could see why they were doing it in the rationale. But what they did then is they, they every firm then took a total risk averse approach to recruiting PCF rules. And so they only wanted to talk to people who were previously PCF approved <laughs> and did not want to take what they saw as a risk on somebody who wasn't already or at some point in the more recent past PCF approved, which I thought at the time was really overlooking seriously talented people who just hadn't been before, but absolutely had the ability. And I remember keep saying to firms going, the CBI want you to satisfy yourself that this person can do the job. So if you satisfy yourself that this person is capable of holding the role, that's what the CBI are looking for. It's not saying you have to get somebody. Okay, it's maybe an advantage if they know they ask, but that's not what they're saying. But that took a bit of time. So I think that's where some of the people I was mentioning maybe had three moves in four years because literally that, that those firms that come in at that point felt like that was their only option. And yeah. so you literally had them fishing in a really, really small pool um, and probably paid over the odds at that time. Because whereas now we've just gone through um, a new entrant, American asset manager setting up, you know, an internal manco in Dublin. We've recruited three, three staff for them. Um, and none of those were PCF approved before. Um, but again, they were very happy because they put them through a rigorous interview process um, that they were well capable of, of doing those roles. So it, it, I think that's much more positive from my perspective, yeah. looking at it in terms of the pool of talent that these firms should and are now back to considering again. Yeah. And what I tend to see when, when people go for roles, for example, if it's their first time to go for a PCF role, the, the kinds of questions and the kinds of areas of concern that the regulator would have would probably be around if you don't have the experience at that level of seniority in management, then how are you going to gain it? And what training and support is in place to help you get from where you are to where you need to be? Yeah. Likewise, if you had somebody who had experience, but not in that sector, again, they're going, the regulator is going to ask, well, how, what's your training plan in place? How are you going to train this person so that they know not just about risk in an insurance company, but risk in a fund management company or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they will be quite pushy to be frank about your plans and having those uh, executed either before the PCF approval goes through or in tandem with it. Um, so it's doable, but but you got to have your thinking cap on as to how you're going to address yeah. this. And I think it's sometimes, Danny, it's just the simple stuff. Do you know what? And like what you're just describing, it's, it's maybe the simple things about how those firms approach it. And I certainly see that in terms of firms that I've been working with, you know, from a very early stage where they're still in discussions with the central bank, maybe the application hasn't gone in yet. Um, there, you know, there are very early stages, but you see the difference. And I certainly, from how they would relay that meeting to me, your talk about how the, their experience had been with the central bank, 
it's it's their approach that actually made the big big difference to how the central bank reacted to them and the more proactive clients the more you know very transparent they bring all the relevant people to the table you know that they know intuitively need to be there um they've put in the prep you know they're not going under prepared they're not making any assumptions it makes a huge difference of course it does because you're you're creating an impression with the with the central bank and that'll yeah. endure for good or for bad uh, depending <laughs> um, be prepared and the last thing I would say about interviews even even though more people have been through them and so there's less of a maybe a mystique or a, a fear about them they're still not a terribly pleasant experience in, in the sense that you know they're there to grill you and find out if you know what you're about and so um it's not tea and biscuits you do need to be prepared <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. it's not terribly pleasant no, I, I wouldn't imagine it is. <laughs> I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't like it myself, but I think it's, it's it's definitely preparation. And again, I think as more people are anticipating it and even firms, because initially I don't think firms were really in a lot of cases given any support to the candidate to go through it, like asking you the likes of yourself to do a, yeah. a dummy interview with them um, to kind of even just what can I expect? Like, you know what I mean? In terms of types of questioning or approach or whatever. Whereas now I think, again, firms are much more bought into actually going, okay, we can't just throw this person in the deep end. You know what I mean? We've got to invest a little bit in making sure that they're comfortable and making sure that they're as prepared as they can be. Um, because it's in our interest, obviously, as a firm that they're successful. Of course it is. And, and there's an element of, Jesus, I, I might be next. I might be the next one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we, let's get, let's find out how we're going to prepare people. We're nearly out of time, but let's just wrap up by having a quick chat, chat about SEER. Oh, yes. Accountability regime. Um, it's not here yet, uh, but it is, it is coming. How are firms and HR departments and, and individuals who are in senior roles, how are they reacting? So, yeah, so there's two sides to that. So from a candidate point of view, it is certainly already. So even though we've just got, you know, sort of draft um, legislation, it's still only it has already started to impact perception around PCF and the personal risk. And again, that comes back to what we spoke about around salaries. You know, demand is one function of that, but certainly the the gloss of holding a PCF role where 10 years ago people were like, oh, my, my career objective in compliance or risk is to get to a PCF level. That's what I'm chasing. Whereas now they're not as attractive. If I go to a candidate who's maybe a second in command and has been PCF maybe before in the past, they might say to me more often than not, I'm actually happy enough where I am because I feel like I'm earning enough money, very happy, quite comfortable. And for the premium that comes with that, with the personal exposure that attaches to it, do you know what, you're grand. And that is a big difference from what it used to be. And I do think SEER and the anticipation of it has impacted that perception, certainly at an individual level. For firms, yeah, look, we've been talking, obviously, Danny, we ran an event for February, just pre-lockdown, February 2020. We were talking about it, in, you know, from late 2019 onwards. So it's been out there and talked about. There's a lot more awareness. Obviously, there's been a lot more events that have been run and discussions that have happened in the industry since then. But the on, in practical terms, like I, I'm running an event or hosting an event with the ACY on the 21st of October from a HR perspective, because I think unlike other regulations, obviously the individual accountability framework is going to impact many more divisions than just risk and compliance of the senior management team in organizations. So there's going to be more, particularly the HR team, that are going to have to do a lot practically to make this happen. Um, and processes and procedures around recruitment and um, annual assessments and things that they're going to need to change. And I don't believe there is an awareness at a HR level to the degree maybe that there needs to be 
around that or that this is a very relevant because to be fair from a HR perspective you're looking at employment law changes you know regulatory and prudential and anything CBI driven is for the risk and compliance department and the senior management team they're not as that's not a familiar feel for them and they're not kind of watching out for those alerts thinking that is necessarily relevant to me obviously they've seen fitness and probity and 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 have been applying that as part of maybe an onboarding process but it's not something they've been in the weeds on in terms of really understanding it and and it hasn't necessarily changed fundamentally their day-to-day or how they do certain things in terms of people management so um so yeah i think that does need a lot more discussion um and obviously we don't have the firm legislation now but i think we can learn from um equivalent regimes in in the likes of the uk um and that's what we're going to be doing on the 21st of october is talking to an employment law specialist who would have been through that with uk firms um and a very seasoned compliance person who again who moved to ireland recently but would have been with a regulated firm in london um, and very much worked through the practicalities and what it means in practice to apply this well please be kind with your hr attendees at the meeting and and, and don't Drop it on them too suddenly. <laughs> because when it comes to describing role profiles, that'll work and feed into the uh, responsibility mapping. Pretty sure. It's- You've lost them already. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> you're going to be looking at HR to, to, to run a lot of that, albeit that yeah. you need input from the teams, yeah. the different teams. But it, even, again, from a regulator's perspective, even if nobody is ever sanctioned under SEER, the fact that the discipline of putting firms through having to think about who is responsible for what and individuals understanding that they are now accountable individually mm. clearly for this particular topic uh, is, is a movement on from where we are, where you see yeah. the ability to kind of group together and everybody's responsible, but nobody's responsible. Exactly. And, and, that's, and I think because it's quite subjective in a lot of those sort of areas, um, that makes it even more difficult because I think, look, we're it's instinctive. We're much more comfortable. Somebody just tell me what to do. Tell me what I have to do. And I will just do that. Whereas SEER is not a piece of legislation like that. Um, and it does feed into culture, which is obviously fuzzy and people get a bit uncomfortable with, yeah. but it's, that's obviously what it's targeting. And it involves a lot of subjective things within how firms are run um, that, you know, maybe lead to uncomfortable conversations or it's not, you know, something that they've been through before. So, yeah, there's a lot of work in it, a huge amount of work. And there is a lot of work from a HR perspective that's needed. Um, so, yeah, look, it's really interesting. So I think that's one aspect that hasn't been explored. The other thing that I, I it's that perception, you know, from a candidate perspective. And I, I've talked to a lot of firms around this about, you know, you need to sit in the candidate's shoes now. And if you're recruiting for a PCF role, what do you want to know now that you maybe weren't not not concerned with, but you knew that the firm had to be wrong first before somebody could come after you. Whereas, you know, if this all gets passed, then there is that direct line into you for some sort of um, finding if something is done and you're needing to trust on all these other colleagues that you maybe don't know if you're new to the firm. So it, I think that does shift kind of, I suppose, what firms are willing to share with people that they're interviewing, mm-hmm. what candidates will want to know if they're interviewing for a PCF job in a company that they've never worked in before, because there's obviously massive unknowns and interviews are about showing the best parts, not the kind of warts and all maybe that you don't want to discuss. So I do think it changes that dynamic quite a lot. It does. And it also, if you're, you know, if you're looking at a, an Irish part of an international financial services group it's not just about what happens in Ireland it's about how, how are we support it from HQ and will we have the resources that we need to to do everything that we we need to do and what happens if HR sorry if, if the Irish operation takes a certain view and, and group takes a different view but my head's on the block because I'm the 
PCF or a person exactly exactly and you, you look at we, you and I have both seen that tension from different angles already you know for for other things so I've no doubt yet this is just going to be one of those other things where it's it's trying to explain to maybe a, an international parent as to why you need to do these things and it's going to cost money to do it obviously you know if you're going to need people to you know map out all these responsibility maps and everything that takes time you know and it takes money and it takes investment and you know if it's cost then you know maybe international parents are going to try and resist that as much as they can so it, it is a tricky one um and there is probably a, a good bit of pain in trying to make sure that you're set up for it and you know that you make sure you're compliant with it and you're not exposing your firm or somebody in it to um to repercussions but yeah so i, I just think compliance risk people very well aware of it have been discussing it for quite a long time but I, I just think the other areas and the other functions in those businesses are not as aware as they need to be right now well plenty of material for future podcasts and, <laughs> yeah. and everything else uh so we better wrap it up there thank you very much jen always great to have you on uh, i think you thank you first of october for your acoi event yeah, 21st of October. So it's a lunchtime. It's virtual, which is the good news. So from one to two on the 21st of October, um, it's just gone up, I believe, on the ACY website. Um, so you'll be able to uh, register for that. So yeah, as I said, we've an employment law specialist from Matheson and um, Magella Walsh is the head of compliance for Barclays Ireland as well. Great. Well, good luck with the event. And if the podcast listeners haven't had enough of you uh, over the course of the podcast, they can check out that <laughs> on the 21st for even more. Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you very much, Jen. Great to have you on. We wrap it up there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Equest podcast and catch you next time. The Equest podcast, funds industry conversations.